whatever your core values are, if they take more than a page to write them down, there's probably too many words. If they're all one word answers, our core values are honesty, integrity, and teamwork and all that, you think, yeah, nice sounding stuff, but at the end of the day, these are just words that can mean anything, depending on how you apply them. So we found that actually having two or three sentences for each core value that defined why we care about this, what it means to everyone in the organization and what obligations it places upon the organization was enough for us to be specific roundabout and say, that defines what we mean by this core value. Today I have Bob Keeler. Is it Keeler? Is that Keeler, how you say it? Yes. That's right, yeah. Keeler on the podcast Cashflow Lifestyle. Really excited to talk to him. I'm going to tell you a little bit about him. This is what I gleaned off of LinkedIn. So Bob says, some of my bosses were idiots. Some were bullies. Others were really great people. I watched in fascination as the bad ones hacked away and turned the flamethrower on any growing shoots of positive culture. I always believed that there just had to be a better way. I vowed that I've, if I ever found myself leading a team, that I would treat them properly, be open and honest, show them respect and hold them accountable for delivery. Took me a few years with many false starts and mistakes on the way, but eventually I was working in a distinct and positive culture that was defined by our core values. When we faced difficult decisions, we would test options against the set of core values and choose the best fit. We began to win work on the basis of our culture. We attracted good people to come and join us and hardly anyone left. Part of what I do today is to share the many lessons from leading large organizations for many years. And that's what I hope we're gonna learn today. <laughs> yeah, Your yeah. many lessons. Good. That, that sort of really, that thing on LinkedIn really touched me because I just think it sounds great. So what can you tell us? What can you teach us today? Give us some lessons. That that puts me up on a pedestal. It's not a natural place to be because I think the lessons that I've learned have helped me, but people will have their own experiences in that. So I'm not for one minute suggesting anything that I say is universally applicable or is the right way to do something because other people might have found better ways to do things and that. So I, I ain't preaching to anybody about anything. Put it that way. No, no, but you must have you must have learned things along the way. Oh yeah, yeah. a lot Definitely. of my listeners will be are small, you know, entrepreneurs and they're learning. Yeah. So uh, on the journey, my my first team that I managed had two people in it. Okay. And uh, the biggest team I managed, I think, had sixty thousand people in it. Oh, my God. Coming on a, a journey and, and through that process, learned a few things, I, I guess, about managing teams, about managing uncertainty, about managing risk, about uh, communication, about persuasion, about the, the importance of having strong values in your business, creating the right culture in your business. I, I guess the, the, the problem here is that it, it's so potentially wide that we could talk for 10 hours and therefore we kind of need to focus in on the areas that are going to matter to the people that are listening to your podcast, Susan, really, so that yes. we, can, we yes. can share the things that might help them the most. So yes. rather than rambling openly and not hitting any of those things, what do you think people would be most interested in, in, in finding out a little bit more about? Okay, I think the important things are 
core values. And I think actually a lot of, well, I don't know, but I suspect a lot of entrepreneurs don't communicate their core values to their team. And that's where a lot of their problems happen. So do you agree? Do you think that's right? Well, I I think that whether you call them core values or whether you call them founding principles or whether you call them just this is who we are and the way we do things, it's not the label that matters. But if you're really clear about who you are and what you stand for, it really can help you, obviously, because it allows you to make decisions that are based on the right long-term things rather than just chasing any piece of work in front of you. It also means when you come to face tricky decisions, you kind of you work out what the right answer is, if not the easy answer. And then you've got choices as to whether or not you choose that or not. And it also means when you're dealing with people issues, it gives you a framework within which to hold the context. Let, let me give you an example of that. For instance, when we, we started a company called PSN back in 2006, and one of the core values was about how we treated with our people. And, and in that, it said we treat people fairly, we treat them with respect, we treat them with compassion. And when it came down to it, sometimes we had to make really difficult decisions to let people go because there were senior people who knew the core values but had chosen to disregard them by, for instance, bullying people. And we said, well, you can't really live up to the the balance of treating people with fairness and respect if it's clear that you have been shouting and bullying and cajoling and coercing people. And we said, and despite the fact that all other things suggest that you deliver good results. The important thing is that we do it good results and a good culture, not either or, so you have to leave. Yeah. And a lot of people were surprised at that at the time. They said, you're letting somebody go who's got a great reputation for great delivery, and they'll go straight into our competitors. I'm saying, I know. I said, there's the difficult bit. Yes. Says, know all of this, but the right answer for us has to be if people are not willing to be part of the culture, they need to go and find another culture to be part of. Yes, yes. And I think that's very true. But also I think that some small business owners, entrepreneurs are the bottleneck. You know, um, the business can't move forward because they're not telling the staff their values. So the staff are always coming to them saying, I need you to. I, I need to ask you a question about this. I need to ask you a question about that. Yep. And if they can communicate their core values, then the staff can start thinking: What would Bob do? What would Susan do? Yep. And then they're getting themselves out of the bottleneck. Yeah. No. It 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 helps. It helps everybody, Susan. But it's it's not easy. No. Because you end up in this word soup of, of trying to say all sorts of nice things when in reality that's not your core values. No. Uh, that's marketing stuff that you're coming up with. So that distinction between what you really stand for. So when the difficulty as well is if your core values are only one word, then people can interpret it in a thousand different ways. Yes. So for me, it was about having enough granularity to be specific and yet enough breadth to apply, you know, universally across the business. And, and, and what we found was whatever your core values are, if they take more than a page to write them down, there's probably too many words. Okay. If they're all one word answers, our, our core values are honesty, integrity, and teamwork and all that. You think, yeah, nice sounding stuff. But at the end of the day, these are just words that can mean anything depending on how you apply them. So we found that actually having two or three sentences for each core value that defined why we care about this, 
what it means to everyone in the organization and what obligations it places upon the organization was enough for us to be specific round about and say, that defines what we mean by this core value. Yes. yes. And it was those words that we would go back and test. And I'll, and I'll give you an example of that is that uh, back in 2013, uh, I, I got a call from a, a, an oncology nurse from Glasgow and she said, oh, you know, one of your members of staff is going through some pretty radical treatment. I went, oh, that's desperately sad. Yeah, he's got quite an aggressive form of cancer. He's got three young children below 10. and But he's been getting this treatment and it's been really doing wonders. And I'm going, well, that's, that's good to hear. Yeah, but it's um, it's being paid for by your your um, medical insurance provider. I said, good? Yeah. Uh, yeah, they've agreed to pay it for 12 months. I'm saying, okay, that's excellent. I said, yeah, that was a year ago. Oh, God. Okay. So I asked, well, what's the problem? They said, well, the problem is um, this treatment is costing an awful lot of money, like tens of thousands of pounds a month. And, you know, the medical provider's not going to provide it. The NHS won't provide it, obviously. This family are looking down the barrel of something they don't want to be looking down. And we wondered, could you help? And I said, I don't know. I said, but let me take it to my leadership team, which was the following Tuesday. This was on a Friday the call happened. And... I spoke to the team and I said, so here's the situation. And they said, no, we can't do this. You know, it sets a precedent. And I said, well, what precedent does it set? Yeah. You know, why are we obliged to to be consistent with every single decision? Surely we take each decision one at a time, case by case, in the context in which it's made. And then eventually we agreed. We said, look, let's get the core values out again. Let's look at it. And in the words of the core values, it said, we treat people, you know, with respect. We treat them fairly and when applicable, with compassion. Mm-hmm. And we said, well, we're lucky in the sense by this time we were in a large enough company that we could afford to provide the support that was necessary. Yes. If you were in a small company, you might have wanted to do it, but you wouldn't have the means to do it. No. I completely understand that. But at this point, we said, well, there's no, there's no option. We've got to provide the financial support to allow this treatment to continue. And as we were walking out of the meeting room, my, my HR manager she turned to me and she had tears in her eyes and, and I said, what's wrong? She says, she says, I've always understood core values at a kind of intellectual level. She says, but I get it. I get yes. it now. Yes. She says, I've never been part of a management team would have made that decision before. We would have all hidden behind policy. We were yeah. all hidden behind various other things. So it was just a real eye-opener for her and a real good demonstration for me that when you've got strong principles that you've defined that, that that mean something to you and you apply them consistently, it changes the way people behave. It changes the way people think about their own organization. And ultimately, it changes the way people outside the organization think about you. Yes, yes. But they're difficult to actually define sometimes, Bob, aren't they? Core values. How do you actually go about? I mean, these core values, do you did you define them? years ago and then you've just taken them with you wherever you've gone no no and and i would i would urge people to say look you know if 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 the core values are only you then you're missing out on the value of trying to make it something that works for the team right um but there has to be an owner of the core values and for me it's usually the the leadership team in an organization should own the core values right some organizations, I think, have made what they thought was a bold move by saying, we're going to get the staff to define the core values. And I'm thinking, what if your staff's twice the size in four years' time? What about the three quarters of the members of the staff that didn't define them? Do they own them? Yeah. What if you want to change them? Who decides whether it's okay to change them or not if you've said that they're owned by the staff? 
I said, so you get into a, a problem where you too many people involved, you end up trying to please everyone. So you end up with this, a string of adjectives with commas between them saying, we're going to be this and this and this and this. <laughs> and you think, very nice, but in reality. So one organization I was working with, and it was one of the, the you call the big four consultancies, and they took great pride in the fact that they only really had three core values. And I went, okay. But I read, I read them and I said, but there are 11 different principles that you've cited in those core values. I said, so you've actually got 11 core values and 11 is a big number. And they thought they were taking pride in the fact they had a small number, but yeah. it's just the way they'd written them. In reality, there are lots of things that don't need to be in your core values, even though you do them and even though they're important. And even though you wouldn't expect anybody not to do them, you want to boil it down to the smallest set you can that says this, this is the set of things that individually they look quite banal. But collectively, they kind of define who we are. Okay. Yeah. And do you think it's important even for a one-man band to do that? I, I think in family businesses and one-man band, it happens without any any necessity, I think, to write it down because you behave in the way that you behave. And in family businesses, the first generation, second generation is usually okay. It's only when it begins to become a, a generation apart from the founders that people are wondering, is this the kind of way we behave, the kind of way we do things? And is this actually what we're all about? So defining the core values in a business as as the team grows is more important. Right. And if you're a sole trader, then having a good, strong idea of what you stand for is fine. But I, I, I would be saying, you know, the, the need to write it down is, is a little bit kind of, it's difficult to justify. Whereas if there's a team of 10 of you and you've got new people joining every couple of months, then how do those new people joining know what to expect and what's expected of them unless somebody's actually told them. And you yeah. can only tell them if you've taken the time to define them and set them out and give examples to illustrate what they mean. Yeah. And that's the problem, isn't it? Because I think a lot of businesses won't find the time to do it or will come up with some um, quick answers that they think, like you've said, um, they think, oh, this is our core values, but actually they're not because it it it's quite a intense exercise to do isn't it yeah yeah and 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 unless you can illustrate it with examples good and bad and define and say well that's that's that happened there and that's actually we don't want to do that again because we all felt bad about that and there's an example there of somebody doing something that we're thinking that's fantastic how do we make sure that that kind of behavior is encouraged yes it's the examples that should define the values rather than the other way about because it's too easy to get strung up in the, the sound of the words rather than the actions that they imply or the uh, the actions that actually have or have not taken place. So when I'm speaking to companies about the values, I'm saying, oh, this is definitely one of our values. I'm saying, go on then, give me an example of when that was last used. Give me an example of when that was last talked about in the, the leadership team. Yeah. You know, give me examples of, of what you did when you found somebody who didn't do that way. And often what you find then is that the, the, the values that they've defined, they've, they've stopped at the end of that process and saying, right, we've defined them, job done. But yeah. of course, the job's just started at that point. The difficult point is not defining the values, it's actually living and breathing the values. And that's where the, the hard work starts, but the real benefits come from that. Yes, yes. And I was about to say, in, in talking about the values on a regular basis, don't just sort of define them, put them in a drawer and forget about them or stick them on a bit of paper and put it up on the wall. You need to be talking about them on a regular basis, don't you? 
Well, we, we I think we took it a little bit further than that, is we actually changed the branding of the business so that the, the visual identity of the business included the values. Okay. And we gave each value a different color, and we gave a story behind that selection process, and that story helped people to remember the values. And then we used that color consistently in our internal palettes for different subject matters so that we began to get people giving them different ways of remembering them. Yeah. And and that was that was all done in a way that allowed us to and then we took it one step further in the next business is that we we defined the logo of the business as seven vertical stripes next to each other, different colors. And the seven vertical stripes were supposed to represent a DNA test. Right. But these values together were the were the DNA footprint of the business, the fingerprint of the business. So every time you saw the logo, you saw everything you needed to know about the company. And it was a metaphor. And it was a trick, but at the end of the day, it helped people to realize that the core values are inherent in what we do and how we do things. And as you say, talking about them all the time, and an example of that would be when I was working with bigger teams, you can't speak to every individual in the team every day, but you can reach everybody in all of the teams at least once a week. Yes. So I would write a, a weekly blog or a weekly post based around one of the core values did that every week for about 10 years. And uh, so over 500 examples of stories. Now, the, the difficulty in that situation is how to keep them interesting, how to keep them short, and yet how to get enough personality in them so people can understand that this is this is really you. Yes. If I was doing it nowadays, I'd probably do it with videos because I'd be confident that more people could see a video. But back then, if I did it in video, there's a fair chance that a lot of people would never have actually had the technology to view the video. So, you know, things are changing, but the idea being that uh, there's no point in communicating once and saying we've got core values, everybody, and then not mentioning them. If you talk about them a lot, people think they're important. If you don't talk, if all you talk about is money, people understand that money's important and nothing else is. No, no. Now, I can hear a lot of my listeners going, that's great, Bob, but I haven't got the time. I'm too busy working in the business. I haven't got time to work on the business. What would you say about that? It's a fair challenge, Susan, but but again, a lot of people I work with are in small businesses. They're busy, but they're not necessarily productive and busy. No. And sometimes and they're doing the jobs, for, jobs for customers that they'll admit to themselves they shouldn't be doing because the customer is drawing the energy out of them and not paying them very quickly yeah. and dragging the business down. Having strong principles and values allows you to be more selective without apologizing for it. Yeah. So it allows you to turn down the work that you don't want and also justify to customers why they should give you the work you do want because you've got the examples to support what you're saying. So, you know, an, an example of that would be roundabout integrity, for instance. If somebody starts asking you to do things dishonestly and you've set, set out front you're not going to do this, then you don't want to work with that kind of customer. Yeah. And many times we would walk away from potential contracts because it became clear through the process that somebody was looking for some kind of unrecorded payment or bribe. And we said, no, we, we just don't do that. And no. the good thing about it was it didn't require anybody to come back to, to me or one of my team to ask that. They just knew it's part of our core values, so we're not doing it. And whilst for sometimes that backfired us, they said, well, you've lost the job. Often it would end up being a really good thing because we'd be the only, only company that had refused to comply. And once people found out about it in high levels in our customer organizations, they would say, well, this contract can only go to one company, the only one company that didn't offer to pay that that bribe, for instance. Yes. And we'd say, yeah, well, well, we wouldn't have done it anyway. 
Yeah. And they say, no, but at least we now know that we're dealing with a trustworthy organization. Yeah. So as a small company, having speak, taken a, a little bit of time to define your principles and then using those principles to help you to sort out the wheat from the chaff might mean you end up doing fewer fewer jobs for more profitable customers. Yeah. I wish I'd learned that at the very beginning, Bob, <laughs> because I said, I said yes to everyone and anyone when I first yes. started. And I had, I call them vampires. I had a lot of vampires, people just sucking the blood. And it, 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 it was really hard for me to sort of say, no, I'm no longer working with you because all I could see was me getting rid, you know, losing money. Yeah. But it was the best thing I've ever done. Everybody kept saying to me, but you'll get rid of them and you'll make space for new people, the people that you want to work with. But all I could see at the time was, oh, my God, I'm going to be losing all this money. But it was the best thing I'd ever done. Great. But and, it, it other, took a while for me to learn that. The other element of it, Susan, for me is that if, if you've got clearly defined principles that help you to guide the way you behave, you can probably operate with fewer controls and procedures and processes in your business. Yeah. Because effectively what you've done is you've defined the the, the boundary fence and then you can set your team, providing you stay within that fence, go out and you know do what you need to do and come up with new yes. ideas and new products yeah. and speak to new potential customers, but, but just don't go beyond that fence because beyond that fence is not where we want to be as an organization. Yeah. And that, that helped me hugely in dealing with the complexity of working with multinational businesses to say, look, it doesn't matter to me that you've got every process written down as long as ultimately you're delivering on these principles and you've got sufficient controls in place, then yeah, we can, we can move ahead here. We don't need to have every single T crossed and I dotted uh, every single day of the year. No, it's learning to say no, isn't it? Definitely part of it, yes. Learning to say no. Okay, so I'm gonna go on to the fun part. I know this okay. is a part that you particularly were wanting to no. be looking forward to. I think you called it Hello Magazine. Oh yeah. <laughs> I tell you, Susan, sometimes sometimes you get asked questions like, what is the one book that you would recommend that everybody reads? And I'm going, if it all boiled down to one book, <laughs> yeah, life would be simple. What are the three things that you would give me? I said, life's not as simple as that. So I'm not going to try and simplify it in that way. So I kind of, I tend to be, I come across as grumpy and un- uncooperative. But it's not, it's not because I, just, I just don't want to demean the the difficulty of the task that faces the entrepreneurs and the business yeah. leaders, it's not as simple as reading the right book or or, yeah. or listening to the right podcast or whatever yeah. else. Uh, you know, it's much more than that. It's all encompassing. So, you know, and yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. But reading books, reading business books is good. I've read a lot of business books and some of them are absolute rubbish and some of them are really good. The problem is you read them and then you forget Yes. You don't you don't action on them. So if you read on them and you've and there's something in them, then you want to action on it, then action on it. So, don't read it, go, wow, that was really good, and then put it away. So I've got a, a, a daft wee thing. My wife watches me doing this, is as I'm going through the book, I turn the corner on the bottom oh, of the page. Oh, the bottom Where, of the page. I do it on the, the top. No, the top keeps me where I'm where I am in the book, but the bottom oh, of the page right. is the bit the bit I'm gonna come back to to summarize oh, okay. it. Okay. And I can go through a whole book and there can only be four pages with the bottom turned over. And I'm thinking I go back there and then I can take a, a quick note of what was the key point. 
Yes. And I'm thinking that's the stuff I'll take forward into my day-to-day job. Yes. But as the rest of the book, interesting though it may be, it's not important enough for me to want to remember and codify and bring it forward. Yeah. No, no, I'm the same. I'm the same. And I've been member of um I've joined various, you know, business book club organizations. Uh-huh. I end up reading books that they recommend and I think no. So now I only read the books that I want to read. Good. And some of them are good and some of them are rubbish. Yes. Oh, yeah. there you go. But the one I wanted to ask you was, what did you want to be when you were a child? And the reason why I ask that is because I often think we lose that. So what we wanted to be as a child, we don't end up doing when we're adults. I often think you look back and go, I love doing that as a child. Why am I not doing it now? Well, there's there's another another way of looking at that. As a child, you don't know what you don't know. No, that's so true. So when you say what I want to be is is based on a very small sample and subset and defined often by your context of where you are and who's round about you. Yeah. So, so there, there's, there's no child is going to be sitting there at four-year-old saying, I want to be an actuarial accountant when I get <laughs> Unless, no, but- unless one of their parents happens to be one of those, you know, it's kind of, <laughs> and yet it could be the most satisfying job for somebody ever. So you yes. know, you have to take that point of view to say when, when you're young and innocent and ill-informed, you know, you make decisions based on what's in front of you. For me, I was into art in a big way. And at the time when I was growing up, my, my kind of dream job would have been working alongside Roger Dean, designing albums for uh, progressive rock bands and okay. things like that, and, and all these fantasy landscapes and everything. But And I still dabble with drawing and painting and things. Like that. Not very good, but it's 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 a, 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 a nice stress reliever, which is great. But, but of course, at that time... you're creative in storytelling. So that's where it probably comes out. Your creativeness comes out in your storytelling. So you are still living... What you loved to do as a child. But but I also realised that to be successful in the world of graphic art, there were very few people that actually could make it to a point where it became uh, tenable to make Mm -hmm. a a full-time living out of it. And and those that did were were extremely talented. I'd put myself no more than middle of the road. And also um, in 1983, when CDs came out, the need for album covers, the market just disappeared. (laughs) Yes. No, it's, com- it's coming back it's a bit coming more back now. again now, yes. But, but even then, it's still a, a fraction of the size of the market instead. So I, I was probably the right answer was to say, well, okay, keep keep your art as a pastime, but, but think about your day job as doing something else. And I thought engineering was the answer. And of course, it turns out for me, it was just a stepping stone into getting into dealing with people and working with people. What about and your that- children? When they were growing up, did they show any sort of creative sides and did you sort of encourage yeah. them? No, my, 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 my daughter is very creative and very arty and very able. And she takes that on to things like doing video production for the work that she does and you know, does lots of things. And you think, wow, yeah, she's just got a natural kind yeah. of um, aptitude for that. My two sons, less creative in that sense, but creative when it comes to getting up to mischief or uh, having fun. Or, or I thought you were saying thing. cooking the books. <laughs> no, 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 not at all, not at all. No, 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 no. That, that, I mean, one's a pilot and one works in a, in, in financial services and uh, uh, they both do very well, but they're both, uh, I mean, all, all three children are, are, are really kind of found roles where they enjoy what they're doing. And, you know, they're stable and they're happy and that's what more can you ask for? That's true, what more can you ask for? 
So tell me what your superpower is. Ah, that's a good question. I think I it's not a question I've actually tried to answer before, Susan. What is a superpower? I think I'm good at being able to listen to people and try and pick out the core message they're trying to get across. That's that's interesting because I think my superpower is listening as well. So it, it's so I I spend a lot of time dealing with early stage entrepreneurs, social enterprises, charities every single year, and we listen to lots and lots of people explaining what they do and how they do it and pitching for business or services or whatever. And in that pitching process, a lot of about is actually saying, "Well, hang on a minute, hang on a minute, that's not what you're saying. Um, no. That's what you are saying, or I'm hearing this, or I'm not hearing that." And I think for me, it's been able to get to the heart of things and saying, but you're not, you know, what you're telling me is not what I believe that you told me before. No. Therefore, what if you expressed it in a different way? Would that not convey more clearly what it is you're actually trying to get at? So that clarity of communication by listening carefully to what people are trying to say and then what they do say and then helping them to be just a little bit clearer, a little bit more persuasive, a little bit more you know, memorable, then all of that certainly helps. And that's something that uh, has, has helped me hugely in terms of coaching people over the past few years. Yeah, yeah. And I think watching them when they're talking, it's difficult when it's Zoom because it's a 2D image. But when yes. you see per- people face to face, you can pick up a lot from when they're talking to you about um, how they're saying it and how they're reacting when they see it. Yeah, no, you're that's right. That's really important too. I, I, I'm probably not clever enough to be to be listening to the content and watching the delivery at the same time. So a couple of tricks during lockdown was to record people and then go back and watch the recording twice, one for content okay. and one for delivery. Okay. What I do now is I tend to do with my, my colleague Derek and I watch it, and one of us will be watching how they deliver and the other one will be watching what they deliver. Yeah so that we can give feedback on both elements and both aspects to it, because otherwise it's just too much for me to keep a track on the content and to pick up on all the nuances of how it's being delivered. So split the task in two and make the job easier. Yeah. And tell me, do you ever feel stressed out? From time to time, yes. And how do you cope with that, Bob? Well, I I like to go to the gym in the mornings and after the gym, go to the sauna for a while, which certainly helps downtime and time off, especially with my wife and I, go away holidays and travel and spending time with the family is hugely great, especially when it's a, a social occasion and we can all kind of let our hair down and things like that. And it's 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 kind of, yeah, it's those simple things. It's not that, you know, it's certainly not, I just I give myself 15 whiskeys and that's me for the night or anything like that. It's yeah. nothing, nothing like that at all. But, you know, a little bit of exercise and go cycling with some of my friends I'd like to play more golf, but the Scottish weather this year has kind of uh, put um, the, the mockers on that that haven't yeah. played much. But yeah, walking around a golf course when I'm playing with somebody who doesn't care whether I hit the ball straight or not is always a good one as well. Yeah, yeah. And do you set goals? I've got goals in, in the context of any uh, business or activity that I'm doing, broad goals. So for instance, at the moment, as you know, I'm kind of, pretty much enveloped in the whole concept of reinvigorating and regenerating the centre of Aberdeen. Yes. And therefore, the, the, the people have asked, you know, starting that, what's your plan? What's your big plan? I'm saying, no, I'm a big, you can't have a big plan if you're setting out to listen to people. No. So the, the big plan is to listen. And then the big plan after that is to try and make sense of what you've heard. And then the big plan of that is to do some of the things that people have told you that are important. 
And that frustrates people because they say, well, where's your budget and where's your business plan? And all that. I'm saying, no, 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 no. I'm not going to artificially create stuff out of midair no. when we've not got enough definition round about it yet. But the big plan in all of that is really is to get to a place where people will acknowledge that actually the city centre's not bad. And for Aberdeen, that's that would be the most glowing praise that you could get is... Yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> Aberdonians aren't so bad. No, no. I was, I some of them say even better things. Of, yeah, yeah, that'd be great. I was talking to a taxi driver and he was bemoaning about Union Street and I was saying, but they're doing something about it. And now that it's, it looks like we've got found funding from the SNP, that sounds you know, from, really from good. the Scottish government. Scottish government, sorry. Yeah. 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 That sounds really good. And I said, um, the greens being done, you know, that'll be a positive thing. Hopefully that'll help yes. as well. You've got to look at the positives. You can't just look at the negatives. Yeah, I I I'm I'm inherently positive, Susan, but always have been throughout my business life is that every time change happens, there's an opportunity. Every time something bad goes wrong then there's an opportunity to learn from it and to move on. So uh, it's the same here as there are lots of things that you can look at now and say, hmm, maybe that wasn't the wisest decision to let that happen, but you can't change it. So yeah. you can't go back in history. So yeah. why do we say, well, what's the, what's the option going forward? And and I'm hugely encouraged on a couple of fronts. Firstly, the number of people that want to help is, is fantastic. And secondly, the number of people that have come forward already and said, I'm interested in being a bigger part of this whole Union Street story. I'd like to open up this kind of unit or I'd like to bring this kind of business onto the street. And that's before we've really started marketing it to any great degree. Then that's usually encouraging for me that with the right messaging and with the right commercial metrics in place, then there's no reason, I don't think, why we can't actually make a dent in turning around the the feel and the appearance and ultimately the pride in the street from being pretty negative to hopefully neutral and then to positive. Yeah. And that's a nice note to finish on, Bob. And that's a that's a, a good thing for entrepreneurs to learn. Be positive. Be positive. Be positive. Yeah. Because what's the alternative? Yeah. You can't change what's in the past. Yep. Just move forward and be positive. And, and you can't change you can't control everything, but you can control your reaction. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So thank you very much for talking you, Susan. I've thank really you. enjoyed it. My thank name you. is Susan Crichton. This is the Cashflow Life Support Podcast. Thank you for listening. <laughs>